Thanks once again for uh, joining the uh, ME, uh, ME 101 series. This is the sixth uh, lecture in, in the series of uh, 10. Uh, so we are past the halfway point. And then today uh, we're going to discuss uh, Israel. Uh, I mean, no, no, uh, no series of lectures that uh, aims to be a comprehensive primer on the Middle East can afford to exclude Israel. As our chairman, uh, Bilahari Kausigan, is fond of saying, uh, Israel is a Middle Eastern company and it's not going, uh, Middle Eastern country and it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, but, uh, you know, as, as we've all kept abreast of the news, uh, Israel has, uh, geopolitical situation has evolved rapidly. I mean, just days ago, something that many thought not possible at all, uh, the signing of the Abraham Accords between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain took place. Uh, and uh, one question on everybody's lips has been whether any more deals will, will follow. So this, this, these deals, the Abraham Accords, are concrete proof of a formation of a de facto front of sorts with the major Sunni governments in the Persian Gulf against a Shia-dominated so-called axis of resistance led by Iran. Uh, the so-called Sunni-Israeli coalition and the Shia Crescent are just two of the regional axes that uh, affect Israeli strategic calculations. Uh, others include where does Turkey stand, for example. Uh, Turkey has been quite vociferous uh, in criticizing Israel of late, uh, despite having uh, uh, so-called close ties with, with, with Tel Aviv. Uh, and how is Israel positioning itself in the relatively new context of uh, mid Mediterranean gas politics, uh, where it is aligned with Greece, Syria, uh, Cyprus, and Egypt against uh, Turkey? Uh, and of course, the elephant in the room is how the United States' uh, gradual retreat into an offshore balancing role in the region, combined with China's increasing presence, influenced the way that Israel competes and cooperates with other regional states. So to take us through this complex web of ties, let me welcome today's speaker, Kevin Lim, a Singaporean who has made Israel home for many years. How many years has it been, Kevin? In our country for 17 years. Uh, 17 years, so yeah, more Israeli than Singaporean now. <laughs> not, not all of it in Israel, but uh, yeah, now by now a large part of it. Okay. Yeah, Mr. Lim is a PhD researcher at the School of Political Science, Government and International Affairs at Tel Aviv University and a Middle East and North Africa consultant for IHS Market, a London-based firm that provides information and insight into a wealth of areas. Uh, Kevin, please go ahead. Thank you, Carl, for the um, uh, for the introduction. As I mentioned in the um, lecture synopsis, uh, part, part of which uh, Carl has also touched upon, Israel's geopolitical position within the Middle East has evolved dramatically since independence, uh, 1948. In this lecture, what I want to try and do is to bring our focus to a few contemporary areas of geopolitical competition and cooperation. Uh, before looking at that, however, I want to perhaps briefly just look at the past to understand how things have evolved into the present. So in the first decades of Israel's existence, 1948 onwards, um, Israel's foreign policy was largely marked by wars of survival against its Arab neighbors, uh, and with at least one war marking every decade until the 1980s. So we have, of course, the 1948 War of Independence, um, the 1956 
Suez Crisis, 1967 Six Day War, and then the War of Attrition that lasted from 1967 till around 1970 for a few years. And then you had the Yom Kippur War, the October uh, 1973 war. Uh, these wars were interstate conventional wars against large Arab armies, mainly Egypt and Syria, uh, and to lesser extents, Jordan, Lebanon, and further away, Iraq, Ba'athist Iraq. They were also marked by a lot of ground maneuver, armor warfare, and air superiority. Diplomatically, um, other than special relations with a superpower, uh, which, which uh, meaning the US, uh, Israel also sought to outflank its immediate hostile inner Arab circle, which was, of course, back then mainly led by Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, with uh, Soviet support. Israel sought to outflank this inner hostile circle with an outer circle of non-Arab, uh, mainly non-Arab allies and partners. This was known as the periphery doctrine. So Israel's partners in, these, in this outer circle included Persian Iran, which was back then under Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, Kemalist Turkey, uh, Christian Ethiopia, and to an extent also the Kurds uh, in Iraq and the Maronite Christians in Lebanon. And then starting through the Lebanese Civil War and Operation Litani in 1978, and then more uh, forcefully Operation Shlom Gamil or Peace for Galilee in 1982, Israel under the right-wing Likud government uh, invaded Lebanon to clear out the presence of Palestinian militants, but then increasingly found itself mired in asymmetric guerrilla warfare. So this form of guerrilla urban warfare then intensified with the Palestinian uprisings or intifadas, uh, starting from 1987 with the rise of Hamas. Hamas also, I mean, you know, came into existence in that, uh, at the same time. And then again in 2000, uh, the Al-Aqsa Intifada, uh, and this also came to characterize more or less the internal Israel-Palestinian conflict, this asymmetric sort of uh, conflict. But today, Israel's largest threats are no longer existential. Uh, you might quibble about what existential means, but they're no longer existential in the sense of being against uh, Israel being pitted against large Arab armies. It's become a combination of a large non-Arab state, the Islamic Republic of Iran, with a population that's 10 times that of Israel's uh, and, and a territory that's many times that of Israel's as well, along with uh, Iran's uh, or an Iranian-led axis of resistance, Mehbari Mukhabimat in Persian, comprising a coalition of mainly Arab militia, uh, militia uh, allies, who all, however, still engage in asymmetric warfare against Israel. Why asymmetric? Because militarily, Israel remains the region's most powerful state. This then takes us into our first main area of geopolitical competition. Uh, Carl has, of course, mentioned this, this axis of resistance in Iran. So Israel's objective is to contain Iran and its allies, which include, of course, Bashar al-Assad's government in Syria, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and a number of Shia militias inside Iraq, like Qatar, Hezbollah, Assad al-Haq, uh, the Ba'ath organization, Hezbollah al-Nujaba, and so on. Iran's allies have uh, also, of course, include Sunni, and not Shia only, but also Sunni-Palestinian factions, which reject peace with Israel, starting with Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and to a lesser extent, Hamas. Uh, there are also the Ansarullah Houthis in Yemen, which uh, are Shia, but they're five Shiva, Zaydis, they're not exactly uh, Davos, the Imam, or 12 uh, Shi uh, Shias of Iran, 
but there are some joint interests, there are some shared interests with Iran as well. So for Israel, uh, Syria is a key arena right now. In the course of Syria's civil war over the past eight years or so, Iran has sought to entrench itself militarily. Uh, politically, it was already an ally with Syria. From when Assad's father, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad was Syria's president, uh, and particularly when Syria also supported Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and in so doing, it also broke ranks with most of the other Arab states. Um, till now, Israel has conducted airstrikes on thousands of targets over the past years uh, to prevent Iran's entrenchment and to prevent Iranian transfers of sensitive military hardware to both to Syria, but especially to Hezbollah in Lebanon, for which uh, Syria is, of course, a, an overland conduit. Iran isn't alone, of course. Uh, in Syria, Israel has also had to deal with uh, Russia, which is the probably the biggest player in uh, uh, in Syria. So far, however, both Israel and Russia have largely, not always, but largely coordinated, with Russia not really preventing Israel from striking Iranian or pro-Iranian uh, forces or targets inside Syria. Iran's entrenchment has also extended uh, hostilities on Israel's northern front. In the past, it used to be with Lebanon, but it's now over the past eight years, extended it towards Israel's northeastern front, towards uh, the Syrian borders, of course. Compare this to before uh, Syria's civil war, when the Assad's uh, father and son, of course, kept the Israeli-Syrian borders largely quiet for decades, which is also why at the start of Syria's civil war, Israel largely kept quiet, uh, since at least Bashar al-Assad for Syria is the enemy that we know, and we don't really know who or what will replace him. Um, apart from Syria, the other major issue with Iran is, of course, its nuclear program, nuclear ballistic missiles, the whole thing. But nuclear program has been front and center. Uh, Israel has long and, and so far successfully attempted to prevent its enemies from, growing, from uh, becoming nuclear through what is known as the Begin Doctrine. So in 1981, Israel under then uh, Likud Prime Minister Menachem Begin uh, destroyed the Osirak reactor in Iraq that, uh, that Iraq was building. Saddam Hussein was building. And then in 2007, Israel again destroyed, uh, then under the Kadima government, uh, Olmert, uh, destroyed a secret nuclear facility in al Kibar in Syria's Deir Zor region. Between uh, 2010 and 2012 in particular, Israel faced an enormous dilemma as to whether it should also strike Iran's nuclear facilities. Um, that dilemma hasn't completely disappeared. Uh, it went down for a while after the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, but then now with the Trump administration having withdrawn from the JCPOA, uh, Iran has also in response ramped up its nuclear facility, uh, its uh, activities, so it's an issue once again. The fact that Iran now has uh, the Middle East's largest ballistic missile arsenal, which ranges up to 2,000 kilometers, it's a problem because this is also a potential nuclear weapons delivery vehicle. Yet the problem isn't only one of capability, but also of intent. Pakistan, for instance, is a nuclear weapons state with no diplomatic ties with Israel. But unlike Iran, Pakistan doesn't threaten Israel with destruction. So um, from Israel's perspective, Iran's threats of destruction combined with a potential nuclear arsenal raise the stakes manifold, tremendously. We might quibble, of course, about whether this poses an existential threat to Israel, 
uh, but whoever is Israel's prime minister will have to take Iran's threats at face value. There's been no um, direct interstate conventional war between Israel and Iran. It's mostly been in the shadows or by proxy. Although in Syria, of course, Israel's uh, airstrikes have also directly killed members of Iran's IRGC or the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, in this shadow war between Israel and Iran, there is also the role of assassinations as well as cyber warfare. It's not just, uh, it's not just uh, kinetic. Uh, between 2010 and 12, in particular, um, Israel allegedly assassinated a number of Iranian uh, nuclear scientists. I think it killed four and it wounded a fifth. Uh, and then Iran and Hezbollah responded by targeting Israelis across a number of countries. Um, including in, in Thailand near to, to Singapore. Uh, and it actually killed, Hezbollah is thought to have actually killed a handful of Israeli tourists in Burgas in Bulgaria. Where cyber war is concerned, the Stuxnet attack, uh, roughly a decade back, targeted Iranian uh, sentry fugitives, but this was only the most prominent example. It certainly isn't the only. Cyber attacks have not only targeted military and nuclear facilities, but have also targeted uh, civilian infrastructure in both countries. Recently, we saw uh, Iran apparently, according to reports, Iran apparently targeted, trying to target Israel's water system and Israel apparently responding by targeting Iran's Shahid Rajai port in Bandar Abbas. By the way, for those who are interested and who don't know it yet, there's a recent Israeli uh, television series called Tehran, which is filmed in Hebrew and Persian, but I think it should soon be available in English if it's not already. It's, I think the rights have been bought up by Apple. This series showcases not only the nuclear threat, but also the ongoing cyber war between both countries. A little spoiler though, all this also revolves around a very strange love story. So as I mentioned, Israel has sought to contain Iran in various kinetic and non-kinetic ways. It has also maintained an Israeli diplomatic uh, and I believe intelligence presence in countries around Iran, Azerbaijan, Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, Iraqi Kurdistan is not a country, it's a region, but nonetheless, Turkmenistan. And now, uh, moving ahead, the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure Israel was also present in the Gulf, the Southern Gulf anyway before this, but now it's, it's official. Israel also, of course, supports Kurdish independence. But over the past decade or so, there's also been another way it has sought to push back against Iran. And this takes me to my second point, which is the main area of geopolitical cooperation. This takes the shape of a growing common front against Shia Iran between uh, Israel and Sunni powers, especially in the Gulf. So for Sunni powers like Saudi Arabia, this was largely the case, especially after Saddam Hussein's removal after 2003, uh, when the US effectively got rid of what was until then Iran's main military adversary and importantly, counterbalancer. So for the Saudi-led Sunni coalition, this became even more acute during the so-called Arab Spring uprisings, when they perceived uh, Iran's influence and military, military presence to be expanding in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and elsewhere. Now, the convergence and in interests between Israel and the Gulf states in particular um, is not only driven by threat perceptions linked to Iran, but even if the Gulf states don't say it, often say it explicitly, it is an important element, of course. Um, also, let's not forget that many of the Sunni-ruled Gulf states also have local Shia communities that are susceptible to Iranian influence. Uh, I have in mind Bahrain, especially, at least half of uh, whose population is Shia, half to 60%, I don't remember the figures, uh, but the majority 
most of them are Shia and they're living under uh, Sunni rule. So it's, it's a very explosive mixture. Ties with the Gulf states were actually improving in the 1990s. This is not the first time, let's remember that. During when? Uh, none other than the Oslo peace process years. In the 1990s, Israel on the one hand and countries like Qatar, Oman, Morocco, Tunisia swapped liaison officers, trade representations, uh, representations of different, of different types. Uh, but then these were then subsequently suspended as a result. You had a second intifada, Israel-Gaza tensions, different wars and all that. At the same time, uh, if we look slightly still within the Sunni world, but away from the Gulf, of course, you have uh, Israel's ongoing support for Egypt and Jordan. And this is, this is still is a very, very important element in Israel's national security thinking. Uh, Israel has peace agreements evolved since 1979 and 1994, respectively. Both countries are, of course, also allies of the Gulf states, uh, heavily subsidized or financially uh, supported by them. For Israel, the stability of the Jordanian border, its longest uh, border, is particularly critical since Israel lacks strategic depth, which is to say it is very long, but it's also very narrow. So Jordan is pretty much key. Israel GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, relations, in particular, I think improved also after current Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's rise. In 2016, Israel opened a permanent mission to IRENA in Abu Dhabi. This is the International uh, Renewable Energy Agency. This was after Israel helped the UAE lobby uh, for, for the siting, for the site to be in Abu Dhabi. Israel also sold spyware to countries like the UAE. Uh, NSO sold Pegasus uh, mobile uh, phone spyware, for instance. And meanwhile, uh, you had Israeli ministers over the past decade also increasingly visiting the Gulf, even before this normalization accord, accords. Warming ties between Israel and the GCC were ultimately a product of changes in the regional distribution of power, influence, security, and threat. The Arab Spring made clear that the nature of the protests on the Arab street were so, uh, socioeconomic and that Palestine was no longer the main or even the most pressing regional issue. The protests and attempts at democratization could, however, also destabilize the, the conservative GCC monarchies. Another reason is some of the Gulf states' economic diversification away from oil. And in this, of course, you have uh, a lot of uh, avenue for cooperation with uh, of Israel and high tech and, and, and so on. And then there is also the US's wavering support or perceived support of uh, perceived, the US's perceived wavering support for its Sunni Arab allies. We only have to remember the number of cases. They saw, however, uh, 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 for example, how the US ditched uh, Hosni Mubarak, Egypt's president. They saw how uh, the US sought to pivot to Asia and that would of course imply moving away from the Middle East. There was also the U.S.'s shale oil slash gas revolution, which in turn reduces, uh, has already reduced American independence uh, or rather dependence on Persian Gulf energy. The P5 plus one that signed the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement in 2015, signed it with Iran without, as far as I know, consulting the Sunni or Gulf states. Um, and also under Trump, uh, we've seen a gradual troop withdrawal from the Middle East, including from Syria, uh, recently, Iraq, uh, reduction in numbers at least, and also Afghanistan. And uh, last of all, in response to the Saudi Aramco attacks in September last year, claimed by the Houthis but attributed to Iran, the US failed to respond militarily. So, among the GCC states, well, most of them at least, there is a sense of uncertainty 
has been a sense of uncertainty, I think, in, in the US's commitment to the Gulf. But amid all this, on the other hand, there's only been one neighborhood power able and willing to strike at Iran and its clients when necessary, and that's Israel. Of course, there's also intra-GCC competition within the bloc itself. I think earlier speakers might have uh, spoken about this. Uh, and in addition, the GCC states' ties with Iran vary. It's not, it's not across the board. They, all, they aren't all the same. For instance, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and to some extent the UAE have been the most vocal. Oman is still largely perceived as a neutral intermediary. Uh, by the way, Oman was also the one which mediated the secret channel between the US and Iran in 2012 which then eventually became uh, the official negotiations leading to the actual JCPOA. Kuwait prefers to keep a lower profile. Uh, and finally, we have Qatar, which is uh, Qatar is uh, relatively among these uh, six, the closest to Iran, in part also because of the GCC's blockade, the Saudi-led blockade on Qatar from 2017, which uh, had the effect of pushing, among other things, of pushing Qatar closer to Iran and, of course, Turkey, with which Qatar shares support for the Muslim Brotherhood, the Sunni Muslim Brotherhood. In the UAE's case, it's, it threats, uh, it threats a, a very thin line because it's right on the forefront, geographically speaking. Uh, and it has had to, in some ways, moderate its rhetoric against uh, Iran or concerning Iran. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the Emirate of Dubai, in particular, is economically very closely intertwined with Iran and has a lot of Iranian uh, residents, some second, third generations and beyond. So it potentially has a lot to lose in the event of tensions uh, with Iran. You've, of course, uh, all heard of the Israel-UAE and now, and of also the Israel-Bahrain agreements. They're not peace agreements as such because there, were, there never was war, uh, but these are normalization agreements and that's still uh, pretty significant. In its public rhetoric, however, the UAE, for instance, makes it a point to stress that the agreement is not aimed against any country, Iran, uh, but that it was the UAE's way of getting Israel to suspend its annexation of the West Bank. So the rhetoric, you know, the way it's been couched uh, is, of course, interesting. Um, previously, as part of the 2002 Saudi-led Arab Peace Initiative, it used to be land for peace when it comes to Israel's peace in the rest of the, the Arab world. Now Israeli, leaders, Israeli leadership is talking about peace for peace or perhaps behind the scenes peace for arms, F-35s. Um, meanwhile, of course, while it has also said that it would not sign an agreement with Israel before the Palestinians have their own states, Saudi Arabia has also opened up its airspace to not only to Air India, but also Israeli air carriers flying directly from Tel Aviv uh, to Asia, uh, potentially also to Singapore at some point if, starts, if flights ever happen. Uh, and it certainly, Saudi Arabia certainly, of course, supports the peace agreements of the UAE and Bahrain. Um, Israel's warming ties with these Sunni powers appear to further contradict or further contradict the centrality of the Palestinian issue on, uh, uh, to the region and also the view of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a religious conflict or that um, Arab solidarity is even a thing. Um, it's, uh, you've all heard of diversionary wars. It's also interesting for me here in this case with the UAE with Israel, uh, whether this is also an example of diversionary peace uh, for domestic political objectives uh, for both uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and also for Trump, for the upcoming elections and potential elections for Israel. Now, uh, this all, of, of course, has created these uh, uh, normalization accords, I mean, ha uh, have created a certain momentum for Israel and possibly other Sunni governments uh, still to normalize relations. I want to move on now to my third point, to a third point, which is 
another increasing arena of geopolitical competition and cooperation for Israel, and this mainly involves Turkey. Uh, Israel-Turkey ties, just a quick background, uh, Israel-Turkey ties have been strained since Israel's Operation Kaslet in Gaza, uh, Gaza in 2009, and especially since the, nine, uh, the 2010 Mavi Mamara incident. Uh, the Mavi Mamara event involved, for those who don't know, in, involved a fleet of civilian humanitarian chartered ships, which tried to run the Israeli blockade on Gaza but then ended up with the Israel Defense Force killing uh, several activists, all or most of whom were Turkish nationals. Turkey recalls ambassador, ties became tense, and yet trade continued and even increased. And only in late 2016, I think so, about six years later, were their respective ambassadors uh, reinstated after reconciliation talks. Six years. But then, that's not the end of the story. Tensions continue on and off. After the U.S. Embassy transferred to Jerusalem a couple of years back, uh, and after the recent, of course, uh, Israel's normalization accord to the UAE and then Bahrain, Turkey was one of the harshest critics, alongside Iran and the Palestinians themselves. Imagine the irony of the criticism against the UAE and Bahrain agreements, because Turkey itself maintains diplomatic ties with Israel. Um, <clears throat> Turkish foreign policy itself has changed dramatically, of course, compared to the 2000s when it pursued a zero problems foreign policy. Uh, back then, Turkey sort of exuded this soft power and confidence, and it was often seen, which is often seen as a form of neo-Ottomanism. But in the past decade, Turkey's uh, attitude, including towards Israel, but also the wider region, has increasingly shifted towards more military intervention, hard power, no longer just influence and tensions have, as a result, arisen with multiple neighbors. At the moment, one, this growing axis of conflict between Turkey and Israel specifically concerns gas politics in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's part of a larger regional crisis. You've heard of the growing intra-NATO uh, intra tensions, of course, between Turkey and Greece, Greece and France together, uh, uh, Greek Prime Minister Kiriakos Mitsotakis and, and uh, French uh, President uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, it looks as if Turkey right now is trying to take on the entire Eastern Mediterranean and the EU. Uh, so in this context, Israel is a big player, I want to stress. It's not the central player, but still for Israel, the outcome uh, would determine its ability to export gas to the EU in particular, uh, whether through pipelines or liquefaction. In January and then July this year, Israel signed and ratified the, what is called the East Meds, the Eastern Mediterranean Pipeline Agreement with Greece and the Republic of Cyprus, which is Greek Cyprus, involving uh, submarine pipelines stretching nearly 2,000 kilometers. If everything goes to plan, uh, it's supposed to meet, you know, about, I think, 10% of the EU's gas needs or something like that. Uh, there are interesting elements of both competition and cooperation here. Uh, we have to also remember that at one early stage around roughly a decade ago, uh, when gas was freshly discovered in this area, in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, it seemed to, these gas discoveries seemed to promise the prospects of regional cooperation. But then over time, Turkey, um, Turkey in it, amid its own uh, tensions with all its many of its neighbors, uh, soon found itself excluded, including from the East Mediterranean Gas Forum. And it responded with increasing assertiveness, uh, specifically gunboat diplomacy, by sending drilling ships along with naval escorts to Greek Cypriot waters or elsewhere, uh, parts of which Turkey does not recognize or contends that any gas revenues, Turkey also contends that gas revenues uh, in Greek Cypriot waters should be shared with Northern Cyprus, which is only recognized by Turkey, which is Turkish Cyprus. 
uh, Turkey's assertive foreign policy, not just against Israel, but also against vis-a-vis -vis NATO, the EU, and of course in Libya currently against France, Egypt, and uh, the UAE, for, for example, uh, has pushed these countries together. So this alignment encompasses regional gas players or stakeholders, uh, clients, gas clients, such as uh, Israel, Greece, the Republic of Cyprus, Egypt, France, the UAE, uh, to an extent Italy, and even the Palestinian Authority in Jordan, even the, the PA stands together with Israel on this. Um, they face Turkey, Turkish Northern Cyprus, and of course, most recently, Libya under the GNA, the Government of National Accord in Tripoli. Uh, this has revolved principally around the demarcation of maritime and notably uh, island borders, especially between Greece and Turkey, as part of what Turkey calls its Blue Homeland or Mavi Vatan uh, doctrine. In practice, this affects uh, Greek islands like Crete, Karpatos, uh, Rhodos, Castelorizo, which is two kilometers from Turkey. Uh, in late 2019, I mentioned Libya just now, Turkey signed a demarcation and military cooperation agreement with uh, Libya, Libya's uh, Tripoli government. There's more than one government in Libya. The continental shelf demarcation principle agreement, the problem is that it cuts off the Eastern Mediterranean uh, from the Western Mediterranean. So, uh, and in so doing, affects any pipelines, including from Israel, going uh, through, let's say, Cyprus and then onwards to Greece, e uh, Italy, and to the rest of the EU. So in response, in August 2020, Greece and Egypt uh, declared a similar maritime demarcation agreement, which then prompted Turkey to send uh, a seismic ship towards the island of Castellorizo, which is Greek. Uh, again, I want to stress that Israel does not play the central role here. It's become part of a much bigger uh, geopolitical game. Uh, and for Israel, ties with Turkey are, are still, despite everything, they are important. They are very important which is, I think, also why Israel has largely been sparing, not always, but it's been largely sparing of its official criticism of uh, Turkey. It criticizes, it responds to Turkey's criticism here and there, it does, but it doesn't really go overboard, I think. Uh, separately, of course, in this whole arena, there are also contested maritime borders between Israel and Lebanon, where gas deposits have also been found. But the, my point here uh, is that all of this is another example of Israel getting sucked into a regional competition and into regional co uh, cooperation and competition over natural resources. Finally, I want to move on to the role of China and the, and the US uh, in the Middle East. I think their roles have been discussed in previous uh, sessions. I just want to briefly touch on how the increasing presence or absence of both <coughs> specifically affects Israel. Uh, in the region, China's presence is most obvious in trade and investment, uh, including in context of the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, where money is already shape, reshaping regional dynamics. Israel's high-tech and innovation sectors, of course, uh, of particularly high importance to China. BRI projects may have slowed down because of the pandemic, but they'll, they'll continue, they'll pick up and continue. Israel is eager to maintain, to remain a part of uh, this BRI. It was also a founding member of the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, which of course the US, Israel's most important ally, has rejected. If BRI eventually brings, and this is a big if of course, if it eventually brings regional countries together, all the better. It would also in theory give regional countries more stakes, in theory I stress, uh, more stakes in peace and stability. On the other hand, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative for now still remains bilateral, right? So China, China's relations with a partner country. 
uh, and it has not really given rise to a multilateral status quo involving regional countries uh, because a bilateral setup ensures that China is, of course, always the senior partner. But diplomatically, that was economically, economics, finance, trade, investments. Diplomatically, other than some statements here and there, China hasn't really stepped up to the challenge to try and mitigate regional conflicts, including between Israel and Iran, and between Iran and the Gulf states. Um, indeed, China still benefits from the US's uh, security presence in the region. So in this context, this may not gel with the preferences of a country like Iran, which wants the US to leave the region. For Israel, the, another issue is the regional presence of Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, as well as their subsidiaries uh, in construction projects in Israel. Uh, I mean, Chinese companies that are both present in construction projects in Israel and in enemy countries like Iran. This is a potential problem. This is a problem. Uh, China's relations with Iran in the context of Beijing's increasing presence in the Middle East uh, could also work at cross purposes against Israel in other ways. For instance, if China again increases, were to increase its investments, trade and, and energy hydrocarbons imports from Iran, uh, this could of course financially and fiscally help uh, Iran backstop, help backstop Iran in its moment of uh, economic, uh, dire economic crisis. Uh, after the 18th of October, next month, when the UN arms embargo on Iran expires, if countries like China and Russia proceed with arms sales to Iran, depending on the type of weapon resold to Iran, this could also pose certain challenges uh, for Israel. But even then, for now, um, China's priority appears to remain largely one of balanced rather than lopsided relations with its regional partners. Um, what about the U.S.? The U.S. is increasingly becoming more of an offshore rather than an onshore balancer in the Middle East, uh, which we saw, of course, in the case of the, 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 the southern Gulf states' perceptions. Um, under Trump, the U.S. has gradually reduced its uh, troop, further reduced its uh, troop commitments, including in Syria and most recently in Iraq. Countries like Russia, Turkey, and of course Iran, on the other hand, are filling some of these vacuums. Globally, if uh, US-China tensions continue worsening, the US will find itself shifting even more resources towards Asia or the Indo-Pacific region, Asia-Pacific plus India. Um, US regional diplomatic and military commitment, of course, is a key element of Israel's national security thinking, along with the US's commitment to maintain uh, Israel's QME or qualitative military edge. If this all changes, Israel uh, not in the near term, but in the longer run, may have to compensate for that vacuum. But how so? Perhaps through shifts in diplomatic alliances and possibly an arms build-up beyond current levels. But I stress, I stress, Israel does not at present see any other major power patrons uh, at this point, certainly not China. It's still aligned with the US. Uh, but over the longer run, and de depending on how things evolve, as regional dynamics uh, and the balance of power evolve, uh, and you know, threat and preferences, or the balance of power, threat and preferences change over time and evolve, Israel's leaders will have to reckon with some of these very, very uh, critical questions. So let me get to the conclusion. I think we're good for time. Um, the geopolitical competition that Israel has long faced in the region has fundamentally transformed in nature over the past decades. 
rather than major Arab armies, its main strategic challenge is now mainly an axis of resistance led by uh, Shia Iran, taking place uh, across a number of sites of contestation, including Syria, Lebanon, the Gaza Strip, and elsewhere. But for Israel, there is a lot, also a lot more covert and now increasingly overt uh, and perhaps more institutionalized uh, cooperation today. Uh, this is thanks to a convergence, if not always a symmetry of strategic interests, but certainly a, convert, a growing convergence of interests uh, with these uh, Sunni and especially Gulf states. The Palestinians' leading supporters, at least rhetorically, uh, have now become non-Arab states like Iran and Turkey. Remember that these were decades back Israel's uh, regional allies as part of its uh, periphery doctrine. How times have changed. The um, Palestinian issue um, is no longer as salient or prominent as before, but it is still around uh, and it's not going to go away. And of course, it needs to be justly resolved for both parties, uh, for Israel as well, not just for the Palestinians, and cannot be ignored indefinitely uh, despite Israel's current period of diplomatic exuberance. If Israel faces any existential, existential in quotes, uh, challenge at all, I think that in the longer run, it would less likely be from the outside, but more likely from the inside in the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian impasse and what uh, it has been doing and continues to do to Israel's identity as a Jewish liberal democracy. Thank you. All right. Thank, thanks, Kevin. Uh, that was very concise and uh, hit all the spots. Uh, you, you mentioned this uh, TV series, uh, Tehran. Well, it's available in Singapore already, so anyone of you who is tuning in can get it on Apple TV. Well, I think uh, I'll have to let you go. Uh, thank, thanks for you know, your time. Uh, it's been very, very interesting. You're entering a lockdown, so I hope you'll, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll survive it. I'm sure you will, but I hope it's a comfortable one. And uh, somehow try and uh, uh, enjoy the ho holiday season. Uh, for the rest of you, uh, please do join us uh, next week when we turn our attention to the uh, economic transformation of the uh, oil-producing countries in, in the Gulf, which is a, is a very key part of what we are looking at at MEI as well. So thanks, Kevin. Take care and stay safe. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank you all of you for attending this. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon in person, Have I hope. Yep. Yes, I hope so. Too. Cheers. Bye.